right, you got your Bibles in front of you. We're going to turn to uh, Daniel chapter 8. And it's kind of funny with uh, kind of the story we just told there about John getting in so late and up early and coming for this because uh, before I knew all that was going to happen, this was the opening uh, question that I wrote in prepping uh, the message on Thursday. Uh, How awake are you right now? So that's curious. Uh, some of you uh, also probably stayed up too late last night, I don't know, watching a hockey game or something like that, or you didn't sleep uh, last night for some uh, reason, so you're tired and you're lethargic, and even though it's the 11 o'clock service, I don't know what your problem is, because you probably slept in today too, uh, but you might be having trouble staying awake even right now, and you know, um, you know, now that you're sitting and the chairs are so comfortable and the room is warm and my voice is beginning to lull you into a sleep and really the only thing I really want to say to you right now is wake up! Wake up! Because this is the time to be alert to the things that God is doing and God is saying to us. And being physically alert physically awake is one thing, but we are actually called as the followers of Jesus Christ to have uh, a spiritual alertness, a watchfulness, a, and this is the word in this message, a vigilance about the things of God. In fact, uh, the apostle Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 5, 8, uh, be sober-minded, be watchful, that's alert, that's uh, vigilant, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And that shouldn't be you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you should be so vigilant that he could never sink his teeth into you in any way. And when we think about that word vigilant, here's what it really means. Uh, To be keenly watchful, to detect danger. That fits so well with 1 Peter 5. To be wary ever awake and alert. And vigilance for the Christian involves more than just kind of having your eyes open and seeing what's going around you, uh, going on around you and observing those things. It's much more than that. It really flows out of our hearts. It really is a heart attitude and the defining part of who we are as believers. In other words, as a true follower of Jesus Christ, I'm going to be watchful and alert and vigilant concerning some pretty important things. Not just seeing what's going on around me, but vigilant about my obedience to Christ. Vigilant about my holiness. Vigilant about the mission, about compassion, about justice, about love, about relationships. And of particular importance to us as we look at this apocalyptic section of the Bible... Vigilance does not mean necessarily that I'm reading what I'm reading, these spectacular visions and dreams, and then trying to be watchful in the sense of looking for things happening in the culture and matching those things up and trying to figure out exactly how Jesus is going to play it all out. Some people fall just into that part of it and think that's the whole package in vigilance, and it's not. It has far more to do with my own heart and how I'm living for him. And these apocalyptic passages need to be compelling us and driving us toward greater holiness and greater mission for the Lord Jesus Christ. When you and I live vigilantly in the very manner of our living, then we are by default, you got to get this in the right order, we are by default watching for the return of Jesus by the manner of our life. 
And so we turn to Daniel 8 today, and he takes us further into events that happened in the centuries following the rule of Babylon. Now, Babylon's kind of still in place, and he's getting this vision, but it's all about the next two kingdoms that are coming. And so what we're going to see was future for Daniel, but, but fulfilled in the past for us. Apocalyptic in the sense that it was for Daniel a vision of the future, but as we look on it, it's all been accomplished And the call, once again, is for us to be alert for what God has yet to do. And here's the main point of this message. As I await the end, I must be vigilant. And we're going to ask ourselves some pretty critical questions about what that's going to look like. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll get started in Daniel chapter 8. Let's pray. Father, we are um, coming to you with a a desperate need, and I know not everyone in the room could necessarily express it in the same way, and not everybody might even believe that it's a desperate need, but Father, we need to hear from you. Uh, There's a word here for us, and we need to be encouraged and built up, and Father, watchful for the things that you're doing. And so God, do um, a powerful work in this room through your Holy Spirit to uh, once again convince us of the truths that we're hearing and convict us in our spirits to be obedient and live for you in every way we possibly can. And Father, these things we pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You with me? As I await the end, I must be vigilant, asking question number one here, am I appalled by those who throw truth to the ground? A vigilant follower of Christ is going to be appalled by those who throw truth to the ground. The word appalled, by the way, stunned, devastated, desolate in my soul when I see what people do to the truth uh, that God has enacted in this world. Let's start reading. This is Daniel chapter 8. I'm going to read the first several verses. I'm going to comment kind of as we go here. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first Let's pause there for a second and let's line this up with what we've already seen. Uh, Daniel uh, chapter 7 was the first vision he received. This vision is now coming to him about two years uh, later. It's still under the reign of Belshazzar. It's still part of the Babylonian uh, empire. And um, we're going to see in this vision as it begins to play out. Here's the chart we looked at uh, last week. Remember, we looked at this and we paralleled chapter 7 with chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar had the dream in chapter 2. Daniel had the vision in chapter 7. They're all parallel. They all speak about these four uh, kingdoms, starting with Babylon and all the way to Rome, Medo-Persia, and Greece in between. Different images, the big statue in uh, chapter 2, and then the very bizarre animals in Daniel chapter 7. And then we're going to focus in now. This is where Daniel chapter 8 fits into this, just in that that middle part, this vision that we're going to have is about Medo-Persia and Greece, and we're going to get two more images of a ram and a, and, a, and a male goat that are going to parallel these two kingdoms. So Daniel 8 is kind of right in the midst of this uh, one particular uh, vision that we have. Now we're going to um, continue on here, verse, uh, verse 2. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw I was in Susa, the capital, he's only in Susa in the vision which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram 
standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. The two horns, the, the Median Empire, the Persian Empire is the other one, the Medo-Persian Empire, all together, united under Cyrus, he takes it over. But the Persian part of it took dominance in um, and over uh, the Median Empire. This is all what you see in this um, in this verse, then I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward, and no beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue him from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. This is Cyrus. He was, uh, he was dominating the world. He conquered Babylon. Uh, this would become the new superpower of the day, would be the Medo-Persian uh, Empire. Again, all of this being uh, prophesied in this moment. Then verse 5 as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And he's moving so fast, you can't even see him touching the ground. This would describe uh, Alexander the Great. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram uh, with the two horns, uh, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against him. And struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Now the male goat comes from the west, and this is none other than Alexander the Great. And the Greek empire, the Greek people, had continually been oppressed by the Persians who just kept attacking them. And so the fact that this he-goat, this male goat, goes charging across the land and goes against the ram, enraged because the ram kept attacking Greece. Alexander had enough. He took charge and he began his conquest of the known world of that whole time. In fact, you can see on this map... It was the largest empire ever up to that point in history. And you can see where Greek is on the, Greece is on the far left. And that was the western extreme of the empire. Uh, they had influence even over Italy. And then all the way in the east to India, the borders of India and into India. And then as far south as conquering uh, Egypt. And this was the extent of Alexander the Great's kingdom. He's the he-goat. He's the male goat who's taking over all of this. And it's stretched Again, over a great uh, expanse of land. Verse 8. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, when he was at the apex of his power, the great horn was broken. Now, this happened in 323 BC. The great horn being broken. The great horn is Alexander the Great. And he died at age 33. Right at the height of his power, after having built this amazing empire, he suddenly dies. Here's one of the curious things about history. You remember Daniel's writing this. He's in Babylon. He's in the service of the successor now to Nebuchadnezzar. But he's in Nebuchadnezzar's palace serving that successor. And the curious thing about history is that Alexander the Great died at age 33 in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon not realizing that 300 years prior, a man named Daniel had written these prophecies down concerning his empire and his own death. I just find that so incredible. 
And I think about how God really is in charge of all of history and how nothing is taking him by surprise and everything is working according to his plan and how no matter what's going on around me, I can trust him, amen? God's got this in every possible way. The Lord has this. And now here's where, here's where it, it begins to take a turn. So he... he um, He's broken. The great horn was broken. Instead of it, they came up. No, notice verse 8 that finishes off here. And instead of it, there came four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of the heaven. So Alexander the Great dies, and his great kingdom now gets divided up four ways. Four of his generals, his sons get murdered, and his four generals rise up, and they divide the Greek empire into four sub-empires or four kingdoms. And, and I won't go through all of them. You can look all of this up. But uh, the largest of them would be the yellow, what you see in yellow there, which was the Seleucid Empire under, under uh, the one general. And that's the one that now takes prominence in the story. So we've talked about, we've seen a prophecy of Medo-Persia. We've seen a prophecy um, about the Greek empire. And now it's going to come to this Seleucid kingdom and one particular king that comes out of this. Verse 9, out of one of them, out of one of the four conspicuous horns, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. What do you suppose he's talking about there? That's Israel. He's talking about Israel, the glorious land. And David, of course, would think of it, or Daniel would think of it in, in that way, of course. And this ruler, now we're going to find out his name is and Tigus the fourth, we're going to talk a lot about him even in other parts in this series. Verse 10, it grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of, of the host. It's an interesting verse because it makes it sound like he's become as great as God. That's who the prince of the host is. And, and yet from our perspective, we understand that we live in a world today that thinks it's greater than God, don't we? That we have people who elevate themselves and don't think anything of God at all, nothing good. And they've elevated themselves in our culture today to the level of God and believe they're greater than him. And that's what we see here, that he became great, even as great in the minds of the people as the prince of the host, as God himself, and the regular, look what he did. This is where you begin to see the thing that should be appalling to us. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. In other words, he shut down the temple of God in Jerusalem. He took over the glorious land, and he stopped the burnt offerings, and he stopped all the prayers, and he stopped the regular work of the temple to help people come into worship before God. He gave it over. The regular burnt offering were stopped because of the transgression, and it will notice what it, all of this does. It throws, it throw, it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Just underline that phrase. It will throw truth to the ground. An angel's watching this whole affront to God, and then asks a question. Daniel says, I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long? How long is this going to go on? How long will God put up with this 
Antiochus the fourth guy desecrating the temple. How long will this sin perpetuate in our midst? How long will the people of God be persecuted? For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? How long is this going to go on? Now, for his part, Daniel is just appalled by the whole thing. Look at verse 27, the last verse of the chapter. And I, Daniel, after seeing all of this and experiencing all of it, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. He's physically, mentally, emotionally sick by what he's seen. And when he finally kind of gets over that, he says, I rose and I went about the king's business. I felt well enough to go back to work. But I was appalled, devastated by, taken aback by, stunned by the vision and did not understand it. Like the angel, he was disturbed by the evil, by the sin that he saw that was being committed, not just against the people of God, but sin directly against God, an affront to him. We ought to be just as appalled looking at our world today. We live at a time when when government, when the educational system, when some churches even, when Western society as a whole has, go back to that verse, verse 12, has thrown truth to the ground. Now, I'm, I'm not even talking about just this, the word of God. I mean, I can get how people who don't believe in Jesus can throw this truth to the ground. I get that. But, but what we're seeing in the world today is something even a little bit more ridiculous than that in the sense that they're throwing like kind of normal things we should know, that kind of truth. They're throwing that to the ground. Postmodernism has left us in the appalling state of rejecting facts in favor of emotionalism And whoever has the loudest voice, and that becomes truth. Whoever shouts the loudest, not even necessarily the majority, just whoever's shouting the loudest. We have this what's best for me philosophy. It grips the individual. Truth is relative. It's whatever you make of it. Truth is what you believe, and I believe something differently. And somehow both of those are true. Any notion of an established objective truth that's actually even outside of humanity that we have received as being true, any notion of that is considered nonsense today. And are you appalled by that? Let me give you some examples. Are you appalled that individualism and relativism has led us to a world where the hospital for sick children in Toronto has written a policy that is now under discussion to offer medical assistance in dying to children under the age of 18 without parental consent. I'm not saying that's a policy. I'm saying they've written the policy and it's out for discussion and they're talking about it. I'm not... You have to throw truth to the ground to get to that place. 
You have to decide that it's, that it's relative and that there isn't an objective truth about life and about parental authority that God has established in this world. The world has gone so crazy that, you know what's actually being talked about this week in the press is, how soon before a shift can a police officer smoke weed? How are we talking about this? How is this even possibly a thing? Well, you, have to, you have to throw truth to the ground to get there. We live in a world where parents are being discouraged from assigning gender to their babies. Let your children decide what gender they are. There's no objective truth around that. We live in a world where universities are no longer a place of free speech. Well, unless you're on the left, then you're free to say whatever you want. We live in a place where any dialogue about any of these things is actually considered subversive. And we're heading down a path where just being a Christian means the possibility of being called out for hate crimes. Because truth has been thrown to the ground. Now listen to this. The Apostle Paul wrote this. I mean, hundreds of years after Daniel wrote, Paul writes this, 2 Thessalonians 2. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. I mean, this is something that Paul's describing. This is an apocalyptic section of the book of Thessalonians, the second letter. It's about something that's still future for us. And it's about truth being thrown to the ground. Sin is reigning in our world today. And here's the thing. We're going to talk about Antigus IV and how oppressive he was and what a terrible dictator he was. The thing is that sin is reigning in our country and not because of a despotic dictator, but because of a democratically elected government that thinks they're God. That's the world that we live in. Now, you've heard me say this before. This is not a call for us to try and Christianize Canada. This is not a call for us to create a theocracy where all of a sudden Canada becomes a Christian nation. Daniel was not trying to convert Babylon. This is a call to true believers to be appalled by what we see in the world around us and to double down on proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ. We need to tell these people who have been sucked into the vortex of institutionalized and, listen, government-sanctioned sin in this world. We need to tell them about Jesus and help them to find life in him. All right, ready for another question? You're like, nope, that was enough. <laughs> Close in prayer, let's move on. Number two, am I eager for the unadulterated worship of God to be restored to its rightful state? And that last phrase coming out of verse 14. And let's pick, let's pick it up right there, in fact. Verse 14, he said to me, 
for 2,300 evenings. Remember now he's answering the question, how long is this going to go on, this abomination? For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, 2,300, last week, I kind of laid out for us as we started into this apocalyptic literature, I said there are certain ways to interpret the apocalyptic. I laid that all out. If you missed last week's message and you want to know more about this, those resources are available on our website. You can look at that and see there's a certain way to look at the apocalyptic. And one of the things we talked about was numbers. Do we take them literally or are they symbolic of something? And we established that most numbers, especially when there are certain numbers, are, are symbolic in nature, and we shouldn't press them to be exactly what they say. So we have here, this whole thing's going to last 2,300 days. What's significant about that? Well, if you, if you uh, kind of do the math, I think you have to do division. If you do division on the 2,300 days, you get six years and about four months. Six years and about four months. You go, well, what's significant about that? The only thing significant about it is if you compare it to the The next perfect number, the number seven, you just know that the number seven is a perfect number. And more often than not, when you see the number seven, it's going to mean something that's complete or perfect. Maybe not seven things, but something that's complete and perfect. With six years and four months, you kind of look at it and you go, well, that's not quite seven. And that's what it's symbolic of. 2,300 days and evenings symbolizes something that's not quite the perfect number, not quite a complete thing. Not quite bringing it to the end of all things. And so the answer is, how long is this horrible thing going to last in the temple? This this reign of Antiochus IV, how long is that going to last? Not the whole time. That not to the end of it where it would be finished and complete and the people of God would be gone. It's going to stop short of that complete time. God's going to bring it to an end. And in fact, we're going to get into this a lot more in Daniel chapter 11. And enough to say at this point that Antiochus IV suspended the daily burnt offerings. He would eventually sacrifice a pig, one of the unclean animals, on the altar of the temple. He would desecrate it. The whole thing was so offensive. In fact, he believed himself to be God. He was taking over the temple so that the worship could be of him. He gave himself a title. His name was Antiochus IV. But he added this to the end of his name, Epiphanes. And if you look at this coin from that era, there's Antiochus IV over here. And on the other side, there's an inscription that says that he is Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, which means God manifest. Now, here's the thing about him. I don't know if he actually believed he was a God. It doesn't really matter to me. I have a hard time believing that he actually thought he was deity. But for sure what he was trying to do was consolidate power. And he knew that if he claimed divinity and he took over all of the religion of all of the people that he was conquering and he set himself up as the object of worship, that he could hold on to power in his entire kingdom. And so he's calling himself God manifest. It's a, would you agree, it's a pretty bold move against God and one that God will not let go unanswered. I mean, he was seeking to direct all worship toward himself, just as, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar had done this in in Daniel chapter 2. The whole statue thing was about drawing attention to himself and consolidating power. Daniel 6, same thing. Darius puts out the edict. You can only pray to him. 
I mean, this, this was a very common thing. Uh, nowadays, um, a guy like Kim Jong-un in, in North Korea, it's, it's his whole deal. If you read about North Korea, they actually make people, there is no God, officially atheistic state, but then they have a picture of the leader in every single home. You'll see it in a prominent place. And every single day, the people of North Korea in their families and in their homes have to recite a little creed that's almost like a prayer to the leader. I mean, he's done the exact same thing that Antigus IV did, that, that Darius did, that Nebuchadnezzar did, that leaders have been doing all throughout history. There's nothing new here, but it is a direct affront to God and the fact that Antigus IV, who is kind of pulled out of history, is particularly vile because he did it in the temple. He was an affront to God in the meeting place that God had established for his people. So this is about worship. And are you eager for a worship that isn't tainted, isn't adulterated by the influences of this world? We look around our country and we see how people's affections are, are drawn away from even thinking anything about faith or about God at all. All sorts of distractions and diversions. And even those of us who love Jesus are so, so distracted by so much in the world today. And we can bring passionate worship to him right now, right here in this place. And then during the week, we can hardly think about him at all. We could go days without thinking about him because we're so distracted by all the pretty lights and all the sounds and all the flavors and all the things we can experience in this life. Worship, at its, its core definition, worship is attributing worth to someone or something. I, I look at something and I say, that's, that's worth it. That's worth it. When we worship God, what we're saying is, God, you are of infinite worth and you are my number one priority and there's nothing that I wouldn't give up for you. That's the worship of God. But then we face some conflict, some temptation comes our way. Some truth is brought to bear in our life and we look at that truth and we go, you know what? If I believe this truth, if I live this out, I'm going to lose this relationship. And I don't think I'm willing to lose this relationship over this truth. And in essence, what we do in that moment is we, we love the relationship more than we love the truth, more than we love the Lord. That's our worship. That's the thing we're now attributing value to. And in essence, what happens in that moment is now we're saying, God, you are of lesser value to me. You are now the number two priority. And in fact, there is something I would give up. See, I'm longing for the day when I'm free of the temptation to do that. I'm longing for the day when Jesus breaks through the clouds and restores the fullness of worship to its rightful state. Are you looking forward to that? I mean, I can't wait for that day. Here's a third question. Am I attentive to hear God's voice and understand the vision? I want to understand what I'm reading. I, I want to understand what God is saying to us. 
Now check this out, verse uh, 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. So he's, he's, he's seeing an angel in front of him right now. We're going to find out who that is. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli. So his voice now calls out and it called, Gabriel, make this man, Daniel, understand the vision. That voice had to be God speaking to Gabriel to tell him. So, so Gabriel, so he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened. And fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Now, I love the fact that Daniel was pressing in to understand the things that he was seeing. And I love that I see this every week here as we gather together. That as I bring the word, you have your Bibles open. You have notes in front of you that you're, you're, you're copying down. I love that many of you will catch up on this, and if you miss one, you'll watch the video or listen to the podcast. I love that many of you are going to be in a small group this week, and you're going to run through some questions about this message, and you're going to talk with some other people and talk about application and how do we live this out, and you're going to pray for each other about these things. I love that so many of you are leaning in to what God's Word is saying. I love that you're taking this seriously and are attentive to the Word of God. We have this one here, Daniel's got that, and he's in front of this one having the appearance of a man. We find out this is Gabriel. God's instructed him to help Daniel understand the vision, and Gabe tells him that the vision was for the time of the end. Now, I've already said, off the top, you'll recall I said that all the the things that we're going to look at here in chapter 8 are already fulfilled, that they already happened, you know, hundreds of years ago. That they're all already fulfilled. But you'll also recall from last week in interpreting the apocalyptic that often we see multiple, multiple fulfillments of prophecies that we see. That there can be partial fulfillments that are kind of touch points towards a final and ultimate fulfillment. And in essence, that's exactly what we have going on here. So yes, this is about the time of the end. The end meaning 167 BC and the defeat of Antigus epiphanies, but it's also going further into the future, that there remains a sense of a further and yet future for us final fulfillment. And Tigus IV is without a doubt a type or a precursor of the Antichrist, the Apostle John's word, or the man of lawlessness, the Apostle Paul's word. And in fact, back to Second Thessalonians 2, check this out. The man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Paul's writing about the future for him in the first century AD. And what we're reading in Daniel chapter 8 happened uh, three centuries before with Antigus IV. And yet I read this Thessalonians uh, passage and I go, that sounds like Antigus IV. He's a type. He's setting it up for us. There's another one coming who's going to be just like him. For Paul and for us, this is still future. And God is speaking here in his word and assuring us again that he has everything under control. And are, are you hearing that message? Are you believing it? Are you trusting him? And if not, maybe it's because you don't have enough honor 
and sense of awe when the word of God is opened. I mean, I, 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 I love Daniel's response here to Gabriel. I mean, I wonder how many of us in the room have ever, ever thought to ourselves, you could just raise your hand if this is true, I would love to meet an angel. I would love to meet an angel. Anybody here? You've thought about that. Come on, there's more of you. I loved it. That'd be so cool, wouldn't it? I wish I could meet an angel. But notice as Gabriel approaches Daniel, verse 17, Daniel was frightened and fell on his face. Be careful what you wish for. Now, I know that when we read the Bible, we don't get the advantage of having an angel like Gabriel show up and and become our commentator, our teacher, and our mentor in the truths of God's word. Maybe I would have a greater sense of awe with the word of God if I had an angelic presence there with me teaching me the Bible. But nevertheless, we should have a healthier fear of God and a respect for his word every time we open the book. These are his very words to us. This is God writing to us to reveal who he is to us. There's there's nothing more awesome than the things we read in God's word. This is the only thing Reading these words and knowing who our God is and, and, and how they reveal Jesus Christ to us and how they tell us about the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is, this is the only thing that's going to hold back the forces of evil in our lives. Otherwise, we get lost in this morass of this world that has thrown truth to the ground. I had a prof in, in seminary days college and seminary, he would, he would just always say this. He taught me how to interpret the Bible and a whole bunch of other stuff, but he, he would just say, every time, every time you crack the book, you're staring into the face of God. Every time you crack the book, you're staring into the face of God. We're talking about vigilance, alertness, watchfulness. Let's be vigilant in staring into God's face and reading the words of this book and understanding the vision, understanding what it says to us and and living our lives appropriately in alignment with what God's word is saying. Am I attentive to hear the voice of God and understand the vision? And a final question. Ask yourself this, am I encouraged by the great reversal that comes by no human hand. Pick it up at verse 18 now. And when he had spoken to me, I uh, fell into a deep sleep. So this is Gabriel still talking to him and he's giving him the interpretation. And when he spoke to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. I mean, this, this is the, op- we're talking about vigilance. This is the opposite of vigilance. This is... F- Gabriel's talking to him and he falls asleep. This should encourage any pastor who's ever had anyone fall asleep on them in the preaching of God's word. Gabriel's speaking to Daniel and he falls asleep, not vigilant. I mean, I don't know how many of you are, again, tired right now, or maybe you're the kind of person, even when the alarm goes off in the morning, you lay in bed for another hour, confess your sin. 
Any of you? How many of you are the snooze button people and push it multiple times before you get up? Confess your sin. See what I'm saying? We can't be these kind of people. We have to be vigilant with what God's word is saying to us. And so, so Gabriel's not putting up with this at all. So he falls into a deep sleep with his face to the ground, but he touched me and he made me stand up. Stand up! Okay, I want you to hear this tomorrow morning when you're tempted to press the snooze button. I want you to hear the angel Gabriel standing beside your bed saying, get up, stand up right now and be vigilant in your life in Christ. Get up and get ready to go. Verse 19, he said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Okay, again, we've talked about all of this and Tigus uh, the fourth atrocities against God and his people. Okay, it's about the end of that, but it's also about the end that's coming for us. And then Gabriel gives the interpretation. All of this is going to sound familiar because we looked at it in the first part of the, of the chapter. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of the Medes and Persians. The goat is the king of Greece. That's Alexander the Great. The great horn between his eyes is the first king. That's Alexander. Verse 22. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. That's the dividing of the Greek empire. Verse 23. At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, and Tigus the fourth, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall, shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. He's going to come directly against the people of God. Very specific information given here about the Medo-Persians, about the Greeks, and about the Seleucids and Antigas IV. And the verse 25, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up. Again, here it is. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes. He's going to rise up, as it were, against God himself. But this is, this is where we're going to draw our hope from now. Again, we have no concerns about any of this as the followers of Jesus Christ because our trust is in what God is going to do. And as Daniel's writing this, again, we ask the question, who's he writing it to? And he's writing it to his fellow Jews who are back in the land where the temple has been flattened and there are no walls around Jerusalem and and the people are discouraged and they're under foreign domination and there is no king of Israel. And a bunch of the best people of the Jewish people are still in exile in Babylon. And Daniel's writing to them, listen, God's got this. He's He's going to draw everything to a close. And you can be hopeful in the midst of it, in the midst of your painful exile and the brokenness of, again, what he called the glorious land. This evil will not be allowed to continue. It will not go on indefinitely. And the same message comes to us right now. Though truth has been thrown to the ground, God will not allow this to continue indefinitely. Back to verse 25. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken. And Tigus the fourth shall be broken. But notice now, underline or highlight this, by no human hand, God's going to do this. God's going to take care of it all. 
God's going to intervene. He's going to use human agents. In the case of Antigus IV, a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus, a Jewish freedom fighter, assembled an army and took back the temple in the city of Jerusalem and cast out the Seleucids and reestablished, rededicated the temple. And again, we'll come back to those details. Evil was defeated on that day. And all of this is God's redemptive rescue plan for us, all meant to encourage us in the midst of what we see in our world today. The great reversals of history all key in on that one greatest reversal of all time. When Jesus Christ said it is finished from the cross and on the third day when he was resurrected, the empty tomb is the greatest reversal of all. In fact, I love these verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, speaking of the gospel. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the great reversal. Sin, which once had such a grip on us and kept us from our God, is no longer a factor. Death, to which we were condemned, has now been replaced by life in Jesus Christ for those of us who believe. It's the great reversal. And it continues on to the very end of all things because you're saying, you know what, I still sin and I, and I know we're still going to die physically. It's because everything's not completed yet. But then listen to this, Revelation 21, 3 and 5. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And Tigus IV called himself God manifest. He wasn't. Instead, Jesus Christ came to this earth and he took on human flesh and he dwelt among us. And we called him Emmanuel, God with us. He's God manifest. And he ascended to the Father after the resurrection with a promise that he would come again, but sending us the Holy Spirit who is God manifest among us in the church. And we await that day when the manifestation of God, because right now we still live by faith, right now we still hang on to hope, but both hope and faith will be fully realized on the day that we get to live with God. What a day that's going to be. He will, this is the reversal, he will wipe every every tear from their eyes. Some of you have cried tears of pain this week. That day's coming to an end. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Some of you have suffered the loss of a loved one recently. That day's coming to an end. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Truth has not been thrown to the ground. It's alive and well. But we live in a post-truth world. For now, of disruption, of deceit, and of confusion. And in the midst of that world, we know what's trustworthy and true. We have it here in his words. Evil's grip on our world shall be broken. 
by the power of Jesus Christ, just as Antiochus IV's power was broken by Judas Maccabeus. And while we await that day when we will be in glory with the Lord, we get to celebrate all the little mini reversals that happen in the meantime. Man came to me last week, guest central. Only been here a couple times. He came and he said, I, I really want to know more about this. I'm very, very curious. And I hooked him up with one of our elders and they met on Thursday and over a cup of coffee, this man gave his life to Jesus Christ. And this Sunday, seven days later, he walked into Guest Central and he told you, I'm so happy. Thank you. Thank you for leading me to Christ. That's a reversal. He was, he was headed for, for an eternity without Christ and now he's, he's headed for this. That's the reversal. Every baptism testimony we heard last weekend here, all, all the stories of marriages that have been restored, including marriages in this room, every one of those is a reversal, a mini reversal based on the resurrection of Christ, victories being won over addiction in our recovering redemption group. Youth are giving their lives to serve Christ and who, who take their stand for Christ as hard as it is, who take their stand for Christ every single day on high school and college campuses. In places that are often hostile to the truth. Those are all reversals. And we should be encouraged by what's happening around us, by no human hand, by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and empowers us and is doing all of this who walks with us in the midst of this dark and cruel world, who literally is the one who comes alongside. Let's be encouraged by that. As you await the end, are you resolved, it's the title of this series, are you resolved to live for Christ, to be vigilant and watchful for the end? Let's pray. Our God and Father, we do thank you for the privilege of being able to hear your word. And I, I pray, God, that um, we would have um, a sobriety, a deep sense of awe and reverence and respect for your word every time we open it. And God, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would be changing us and transforming us and getting us ready for the end. And in the midst of this world that seems so hostile towards you, God, I pray that we would be bold in our witness and in the mission that you've entrusted to us. God, I'd pray for anybody in the room right now who needs to turn their life over to Jesus Christ to follow him. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be pulling on them right now. Father, thank you for hearing this prayer and for this sweet time of worship that we've had together as a church. We pray in Christ's name, amen.